Please turn with me in your Bibles to the 18th chapter of the Gospel according to Luke. We're continuing our series of studies in the Gospel of Luke. This morning we come to chapter 18, verses 18 through 34. Please give your full attention to the Word of God. And a ruler asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife, or brothers, or parents, or children, for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and shamefully treated, and spit upon, And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Before we dig into this passage, I need to make sure that we're all clear on one fact. Everyone in this room is wealthy. Everyone in this room is wealthy. There was a Gallup study that was done, an international Gallup study that was done several years ago, and that study determined that worldwide, the median annual household income, not average, but median annual household income worldwide was $9,733. The lowest median annual household income was in Liberia. That number was $781 a year. The highest median household income was in Norway, $51,489. In the United States, $43,585. I have pulled out one quote from that study that also illustrates the point. Median per capita, not household, but median per capita incomes 
in the top 10 wealthiest populations in the world are more than 50 times those of the 10 poorest populations. Every one of you is rich. We tend to use the, word, the, the term wealthy or poor, we use the, those labels subjectively. We use them comparatively, relatively. And so if somebody were to walk up to you on the street and they were to just ask you point blank, are you wealthy? I doubt many of you would say, well, yes, I am. Whether you see yourself as wealthy or poor really depends on your context, doesn't it? My wife and I have been exploring the trails, the many wonderful trails, bike trails that we have around State College with our bicycles. And uh, sometimes when we're riding on these trails, we end up in neighborhoods that we don't recognize because we would never go there any other time. And so we're, the other day we were riding through one of these neighborhoods and suddenly we found ourselves in the midst of mansions huge houses. And as we're riding along the streets and I'm admiring these huge houses, I just remember how I felt. I felt poor. I kept thinking, man, my house is like a hut compared to these things. Didn't know we had people this wealthy in State College. It's all comparative, isn't it? I think also the fact that we have such increased exposure to the rich and famous in this culture because of TV, social media, whatever, we feel more poor than we really are because we see, normally, back you know, 100 years ago, you didn't, weren't aware there was so much wealth around you, but we see it every day. But think about God's perspective. God sees it more from that objective perspective of the Gallup Worldwide poll there. When he looks at us, he sees people who have been blessed by him to be really very wealthy in this culture, every one of us. In light of that observation, the words of Jesus in verse 24 are ominous, aren't they? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, of course, Jesus is using hyperbole here, and he, he actually uses a a vivid, memorable image to drive home to us the danger of being wealthy. And if you are wealthy, like all of you are, you'd better be aware of the danger. There was an ancient Persian proverb that said, when they, when they wanted to describe something that they saw as impossible, they would say, it's easier to put an elephant through the eye of a needle than to accomplish whatever that task is. In Palestine, they didn't have elephants. Now, I don't know if Jesus said this first in the Persian, you know, whether, I don't know the history, so I don't know if the Persian parable came first, but, but in Palestine, the biggest animal that they worked with that they knew was a camel, and so that's what he chose. More impossible to, to, for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God than to put a camel through the eye of a needle. It is really important to me, that's why I start by stressing this, it's really important to me as I try to lead you through this passage that you see yourself as wealthy because I need you to identify with this young man that Jesus encounters. He is you. This man, we know only three things about him. That's all the scriptures tell us, three things. We know that he was young. 
Luke doesn't tell us that, but Matthew's account of the same uh, interaction, Matthew tells us he was young. Luke tells us here he was a ruler. Now, the word ruler in the original language is a generic term for a ruler, so we don't know what kind of ruler he was. It could have been a spiritual ruler, a civil ruler, we don't know, and of course those things were combined in Israel in some cases, and so he might have been a ruler of the synagogue, he might have been a might have been a member of Sanhedrin. He might have been a Roman, uh, a Jewish person working as a Roman official of some sort. We don't know. We just know he had power. And that's all the scriptures think that we need to know. He was young. He had power. And thirdly, he had wealth. And matter of fact, the language here stresses the greatness of his wealth. It says in verse 23, he was extremely rich. He was super rich. He had youth. He had power. He had wealth. He had it all. The American dream, everything that we're taught that is the best about life. He had it all. So what can we learn from this encounter between the rich young ruler and our Lord Jesus Christ? What can we learn about ourselves as wealthy people? And what can we learn about ministry to a culture that is very, very wealthy? What's the message that wealthy people like us and the people we're trying to reach with the gospel, what do they need to hear? And what's interesting, when you look at this encounter, it's, it seems to happen suddenly. Jesus is teaching, and this ruler comes up to him and asks a question that I've heard Christians say, man, I would just love it if people come up and ask me a question like this. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I mean, how many times have you had people come up to you and say, Lord, what must I do? You know, teacher, what must I do to be saved? And we know, as we compare the gospel accounts of this interaction, we know that for this ruler, this young ruler, this wasn't just an academic, intellectual, theological question for him. We know that because as we go over to Mark's account, he tells us that when he comes to Jesus with this question, he falls on his knees before him. He's emotional. He's desperate to know the answer to this question. What's missing in my life? I've got it all. I'm young. I'm powerful. I'm wealthy. What's missing? He knows something's missing. There's an there's a, there's a emptiness in his life. And then you look at how Jesus responds to his question. And for any of you that have ever been trained in evangelism, you think, boy, Jesus really seemed to fumble this question, doesn't he? What an opportunity. What must I do to be saved? What must I do to have eternal life? And the answers Jesus gives seem to go against the gospel as opposed to, as to toward the gospel as we know it. There's no evangelism explosion questions here. There's no five-point outline of the gospel. There's no bridge illustration. There's no four spiritual laws. There's no sinner's prayer. What in the, Lord, what in the world is the Lord doing? That's because Jesus' goal wasn't to get a decision here. Jesus' goal was always to make a disciple. And so what he does is he meets this troubled young man where he is spiritually and leads him to the next step that he has to face if he ever is going to follow Christ and know God and have eternal life. There's a real lesson for us in our own evangelism here. I, I'm sure most of us, if somebody came up to, me, came up to us and said, 
what must I do to have eternal life? We would have jumped into one of those training methods we've used to share the gospel. Here's my chance. I don't want to blow it. But evangelism is actually following the lead of the Holy Spirit. And you have to know what the Holy Spirit's doing in the heart of that other person. That means you've got to listen to them. You've got to get to know them. You've got to see where they're at spiritually and then bring to bear upon where they are spiritually the word of God that is most appropriate to that moment. And that's exactly what Jesus does here. It's a process. And he meets this man where he is. And so the first message, as we look at Jesus' response, the first message that this young man had to hear is this, simply. You are not nearly good enough to have eternal life and to know God. You are not nearly good enough. You know, it's interesting that once again, Jesus doesn't answer the question that's asked of him. You ever notice how often he does that? He's asked a question, and he doesn't answer the question that's asked. Instead, he answers the issue that's going on in the heart of the person asking it, because that's what the Son of God can do. He can look beyond the question to the heart to see what the real issue is. And so he doesn't answer what must this man do. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, throughout many generations, Christians have been troubled by that response of Jesus. Because on the surface, it's, you could misinterpret that to think that Jesus is denying that he is good. You know, why are you calling me good? I'm not good. Only God is good. That's not what he says. But it's easy to read it that way. Even worse, you read that superficially and you might hear him saying, only God is good. I am not God. And again, that's not what he's saying. What Jesus is doing, Jesus is good. And Jesus is God. But what he's doing here is he wants to challenge this ruler's understanding of what is the definition of the word good. What do you mean, rich young ruler, when you call me good? That's what he's really getting at. How do you define good? By the standards of his own context, by the standards of his culture, by the standards of his family and friends, I'm sure he was good comparatively, relatively speaking. He was a ruler, probably in some spiritual sense. He was probably a good man. Obviously, we'll see in a moment, he's someone who thought that he was following God's law. Compared to the people around him, he was good. But we are not to define good by the sinners with whom we live and work and play. We are to define good by the character of God. God is the definition of good. God is the standard for good. And that's what Jesus wants this young man to see. That's what he's talking about when he says, again, something that can be misleading if you're not careful, but in the Sermon on the Mount, listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 5. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, the scribes and Pharisees who were seen as the most law-abiding in Israel, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he ends that teaching by saying this, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. That's the definition of good that the rich young ruler does not understand. 
That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 3, no one does good. Not one. All have sinned and fall short of what? The glory of God. We all fall far short of the true standard of goodness, which is the glory of God, his holiness, his righteousness. But then that's kind of abstract, isn't it? God is holy. God is good. God is righteous. Well, what does that look like? How does that translate into our lives? Well, that's why Jesus goes next to the law. How do we know what good looks like? Good is one who keeps the law in every possible way, in thought, word, and deed. That's what goodness looks like, because the law is a reflection of the character of God. And so Jesus says in verse 20, you know the commandments. Again, that's why I think he probably was some kind of religious ruler in Israel. He says, you know the commandments. And then he lists half of the Ten Commandments. He lists five out of the Ten Commandments. And it, uh, commentators, scholars, pastors, Bible study leaders have always wondered why he picks the ones he does. It's kind of, it's kind of a fruitless effort because he doesn't explain himself. But it is interesting that he skips over the first four commandments, which deal with how we love God. And he, the five that he chooses are from the last six commandments, which deal with how we love our neighbor. And again, I'm going to speculate a bit. I don't know what Jesus is thinking, but I'm speculating that he chose the commandments about how we love our neighbor because how can you say you love God who you can't see if you don't love your neighbor who you can see? So if you fail to meet the standard of goodness and how you love your neighbor, then you know you fail to meet the standard of goodness in loving God. And so he points them to five of the Ten Commandments. And at this point again, thinking of our classic evangelism training, we say, Jesus, what are you doing? Why aren't you pointing him to grace? You're going to make a legalist out of him. He's already a legalist. You're going to make him worse, telling him to keep the commandments. It seems to be he's leading him directly away from the gospel as we understand it. But the Puritans used to say, you know what the Puritans used to say? The law has to kill you before the gospel will bring you to life. The law has... Paul talks about this often in his, in his letters in the New Testament, doesn't he? He talks about it in his own experience. He talks about his own conversion in Philippians chapter 3 text in Israel. He knew the law. He kept the law according to the standards of the scribes and the Pharisees. He was a teacher of the law. And in describing his credentials as a good person, as a good leader, as a teacher of the law, he says in that list of credentials, as to righteousness under the law, I was righteous. That's how he spoke when he was still in the same place that this rich young ruler was, where he looked at his own life and said, I'm good enough. But then he met the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. And the Lord Jesus Christ knocked him off his horse and made him blind. But in making him physically blind, he opened his spiritual eyes. And Paul talks about in Philippians 3 how with open spiritual eyes, with a new heart, he was able to see his relative goodness in a whole different light, in the light of God's holiness. And he came under deep conviction of sin. He says, at that point, he looked at all of his righteousness credentials, and he said, at that point, he understood that they were dung. 
rubbish, or as the ESV puts it in a much more polite way, loss. He describes that same experience over in Romans chapter 7, which is interesting. Romans 7 is a fascinating chapter. I believe it's a chapter that describes the state of a person who, a hypothetical person who has come under conviction of sin but not yet, not yet understood how he is saved. There's many, there's many debates about Romans 7. It's a tough chapter. But it's interesting. Let me read to you just a portion of it where he talks about where he understood the right nature of God's law as a revelation of God's holiness to bring us under conviction of sin. He says in Romans 7, beginning in verse 7, What then shall we say? That law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. He's talking about the same thing the Puritans are talking about. When he truly understood by the power of the Holy Spirit what the law was demanding of him in terms of God's holiness, he died to himself. He died to his earthly, fleshly righteousness. He understood that he was under God's wrath and condemnation, no matter how good the people around him thought he was. And he's saying that's why God gives us the law, is to bring us under conviction of sin. It's interesting to me that Paul uses the example of covetousness there, because you shall not covet is the 10th commandment, and that's the one commandment about loving our neighbor that Jesus didn't list in talking to the rich young ruler. And Paul chooses the law that we are not to covet. He chooses that because it's the one commandment of the commandments about loving your neighbor. It's the one that clearly addresses and directly addresses the issue of the heart and not how we live or act. I mean, you can read you shall not commit adultery and say, oh, I'm good compared to that because I never commit adultery. You could read the command, you shall not kill and say, well, I've never killed anybody, so I'm good enough. You shall not covet? Oh, wait a minute. And so that's why Paul says, that's the one that really nailed me. And what's interesting is, I think Jesus left it out when he listed those other commandments. He left it out because that's where he's going to nail this young ruler too in just a moment. We'll see that. Paul thought he was good until the Lord opened his eyes to see what the law really required and what good really meant in the eyes of God and how deep his sin really was. This is the same lesson that Jesus tried to teach his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, you break the law against murder when you hate your brother. Not just when you actually stick a knife in his chest, but when you hate your brother, you're actually breaking that commandment. He said, you break the law against adultery, not when you go and actually sleep with your neighbor's wife or your neighbor's husband, but when you look across the yard and lust after your neighbor's wife or your neighbor's husband. He says, you do not keep the laws about fasting and prayer and tithing just when you go through the actions if your heart is not truly in it. In Galatians 3, Paul calls the law a tutor or a guardian, which is the purpose of it is to lead us to Christ. 
It shows us our sin. That's, what, that's why James calls the law a mirror. It's a mirror that we look into to see the holiness of God and to see our sinfulness in comparison and to bring us under deep guilt and conviction so that the law can kill us so that God, by his grace, can make us alive. This rich run ruler does not get it yet. He's not there yet. That's why Jesus focuses on this lesson because look at how he responds when Jesus says that he needs to keep the commandments. He says, all these I have kept for my youth. All these I have kept for my youth. He's saying, I'm good. I know the law. I'm a teacher of the law. I know the law. I'm good with the law. What else must I do? Give me a new commandment, Jesus. Give me something that I haven't done yet that can give me assurance of eternal life and salvation. He did not yet see his sin. He could not confess sin because he did not see it yet. I just want to make a point here. Again, we talked about the danger of being wealthy and living in a wealthy society. And one way I would state that danger is the danger of thinking you're good enough. Your parents, your teachers, your friends keep hammering a lesson into you. Work harder, be a success, get your degree, get a good job, get a nice house, have a successful family, Work hard to be good enough. And the gospel says, you're not nearly good enough. And you never will be nearly good enough by your own efforts. So that's the first message that this rich young ruler need to, needed to understand. The second message is you can't serve two gods. You can't serve two gods. Like I said, Jesus zeroes in on the 10th commandment, the one that he didn't list. And he says to this rich young ruler, one thing you still lack, sell all you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Go sell everything, liquidate all of your assets, sell everything and give it to the poor and then come and follow me and then you'll have assurance of eternal life and salvation. Now, I need to point out here that Jesus didn't in his own day, and he still does not require this specifically of all who will follow him. I'm sure that nobody in this room has sold everything in order to follow Jesus. But he saw this man's heart. He knew the idol that he worshiped. He knew that even though he said he worshiped Yahweh, the one true God, he truly worshiped his wealth and his power. That was his idol. Matter of fact, it's interesting, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, Paul actually calls covetousness idolatry. He equates the two. Covetousness is idolatry. It's putting your wealth and possessions and everything that it gives to you above God himself. What Jesus saw when he looked at this ruler's heart is that this ruler didn't possess his wealth. His wealth possessed him been a lot of talk the last couple of weeks, especially about J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings because of the new series that's on um, Amazon. If you want my review, you can check with me later. Um, but I, I like the fact that people are talking about those books and those movies again. That college students like to stay up late talking about is, what does the ring represent? 
the ring of power, the ring that seemed to destroy everybody who gained possession of it. And, of course, I have my own thoughts on it, but I, I was curious what, now since everybody's talking about it, I googled it, you know, what are, what's everybody saying about the rings of power? What they, what, how do they interpret what that is? This was a nice brief quote that I got. The ring represents wealth and power over others. And I was fascinated by that definition because, in one sense, wealth is power. Why do we love wealth? Why do we want to be rich? Because we want the power that comes from being wealthy. We want the power of being able to have whatever we want to have, go wherever we want to go, do whatever we want to do. We love wealth because it's power. And what's interesting is that neither wealth nor power is inherently evil. There are many wealthy people who use their wealth for God's glory, and I praise God for those wealthy people. But many, many, many more have been destroyed by their wealth because they've made it their God. And that's what the ring of power really represents. It's not that the ring itself make, makes the people who possess it evil. It's that it draws out the evil within their own hearts and it destroys them. Jesus said back in chapter 16, verse 13, no servant can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. It's such a major idol, cross-culturally, cross-time, cross-every-possible-situation. Money has always been a major idol for sinners like you and me. You cannot serve both God and money. And that's why in chapter 14, Jesus said, verse 33, Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Wow. Very similar to what he said in the rich young ruler, isn't it? Unless you sell everything you have and give it to the poor, you cannot come and follow me. Unless you renounce all that you have, you cannot be Christ's disciple. Now again, renouncing doesn't mean destroying. It doesn't mean selling and giving away. It doesn't necessarily divesting yourself of your wealth. What it means is you sign it over to the Lordship of Christ. Everything you have, everything you are belongs to him. He's the one who rules over it. He's the one who decides how it's used. It belongs to him, and you use it to serve him. That's what it means to renounce your wealth. For some of you, it might mean giving it up. And I don't want to just keep explaining it away, because there may be somebody in this room, you need to divest yourself of wealth because you know you're leaning on it, you're living for it. And it's keeping you from a right relationship with God, and you need to get rid of it. You know, Jesus was never shy about telling you to get rid of anything that prohibits you from having a right relationship with God. Remember what he said in the Sermon on the Mount? If your eye leads you to sin, gouge out your eye and throw it away. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Better yet, use your eyes and your hands for the glory of God and keep them. It is just statistically likely that there are at least a few people in the room right now who have an idol in your life that is keeping you from a right relationship with God. And I beg of you, repent, renounce, and follow Christ. And don't miss that last step. Because 
as we're looking for elements of an evangelistic presentation here from what Jesus says to this rich young ruler, I don't want you to miss, he does give an altar call right here. He says, sell everything you have and give it away to the poor. In other words, repent. Repent of your idolatry and then come and follow me. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. That's an altar call. That's the gospel. Stop worshiping earthly things and direct your worship to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So those are the first two messages that this rich young ruler needed to hear and people in our own culture need to hear and some here this morning you need to hear as well. You are not nearly good enough for God. And you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve two gods. You must choose the one true God. The third message, thankfully, that Jesus says after this young man walks away, and I honestly, I don't know whether he believed or not. I don't know. I mean, we don't know what happened to him after this. Jesus was sad. The young man was sad. He left because he, he was not ready yet. He was not there yet spiritually. But remember what Jesus said right before this? The last verse we led last, read last week, verse 17, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. That's why we have this story in all three of the Gospels where these things are put together. Because remember we said that Jesus said that in relation to the babies being bought, brought to him. Babies can't do anything for anybody. Babies are total receivers. They're totally dependent. That's the attitude, the humility and attitude of dependence that is the, the essence of saving faith. And this rich young man is not there yet. He's not ready to receive because he's not ready to give up his idol, his God in this life. And so as he leaves, here's the last message that Jesus gives. And this is to his disciples. He says, God can do the impossible. God can do the impossible. He says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom. And when he says that, everybody listening to him is shocked. Who then can be saved? You know what that tells me? That tells me that just like today, people tend to assume back then that if you're wealthy, that's a sign of God's favor and God's blessing. When actually, it might be something, that, an anchor that's dragging you into the pits of hell. And so Jesus says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Hear what he's saying. It is impossible for a sinner like you and me to enter the kingdom of God. There is nothing you nor anybody else can do for you for you to enter the kingdom of God because God must do everything to bring you into his kingdom. Every part of it is his work to bring you into his kingdom. He must do all that is necessary. He must do a miracle. He must do something supernatural in order for you to enter the kingdom of God. And that's why Jesus, at the end of the passage, beginning verse 31, he talks about his death. And there in those verses where he prophesies what's about to happen which is going to be what God has done to save his people. Notice how much miraculous, how much of the, of the events that he describes are miraculous. He says, God 
He needs to send his son, his eternal son, the second person of the Trinity. He needs to send his son into the world to be born of a virgin, to be add to his divine nature a human nature and be born of a virgin. That's a huge miracle that had to be done for you and I to be saved. Then this perfect God and man would then have to live a life of perfect perfection in spite of all the hatred and abuse and temptation that came his way. He lived a perfect life. And then he offered up that perfect life as a blood atonement, as a sacrifice, as a substitute for you and me. He died to bear the wrath of God that our sins deserved. And then the greatest miracle of all, God the Father accepted his perfect sacrifice and raised him from the dead. What is impossible with man is possible with God. But even then, None of us would have believed. Paul wouldn't have believed. You and I wouldn't have believed if God didn't do another miracle in time and space in your life. And that's what we call the miracle of regeneration. Being born again. God had to take your stone heart out of your chest and give you a heart of flesh, a spiritual heart. He had to open your spiritual eyes. He had to open your spiritual ears so that you would understand what he had done for you to save you. Because salvation is, Ephesians 2, is a gift from God. Even our seeking, repenting, and believing is a work of God's miraculous Holy Spirit. And not to our credit. Remember the interaction that Jesus had with Nicodemus? Nicodemus was another probably righteous old ruler. I assume he was older than this young man. But Nicodemus, the righteous old ruler the rich young old ruler, he came to talk to Jesus one night and asked basically the same kind of question. What am I lacking? What's missing? What must I do to be saved? Was really what was on his heart. And remember what Jesus said. Unless one is born again, he cannot see or enter the kingdom of God. Unless God does a miracle in the heart of a sinner, that sinner cannot even see the kingdom of God, let alone want to enter it, into it, let alone enter into the kingdom of God. Remember, Nicodemus kind of had a camel through the eye of the needle moment at that point because he's taking Jesus, kind of takes his metaphor a little too literally. He says, well, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? He says, that's impossible to be born again. And Jesus says, that's my point. It is impossible, but God can do the impossible. He can give you a second birth. And that's why Jesus ends that whole teaching with Nicodemus. We often stop before we get to the ending. But here's what somebody who's born again sees with his new spiritual eyes. What Jesus describes at the end of that passage, he says, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And whoever believes in him, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. There's the answer to the question, what must we do in order to have eternal life? Nothing. God must do it all from beginning to end. But whoever receives the kingdom of God like a child will enter into it. You can be sure of that. I love that little interaction with Peter at the end there. Peter's the impulsive disciple, the one who has no filter. 
And so he blurts out, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And you can imagine the other disciples kind of rolling their eyes, like, Peter. But Jesus doesn't rebuke him, does he? Instead, he gives him one of the most precious promises of all the Gospels. He says, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Giving up this world, anything in this world, in order to follow Jesus will one day be revealed to be the greatest trade in the history of mankind. Giving up that which is momentary and is turning to dust and blowing away for that which is of far greater value and eternal. What a great exchange. And notice he says, in this time and in the age to come. And then he lists the blessings. And it's interesting, he lists one thing, only one thing that is material. A house. If you give up your house, I think in one sense, Jesus includes that and say, I'll take care of you. Trust me. Even if you have to sell your house and give up your house for the sake of the kingdom, trust me, I'll take care of you. But notice that the other things he lists are all relationships. Parents, children, brothers, sister, friends, wives, husbands. And it hits home for those of us who have had to leave families in order to follow Christ, who've had to leave relationships in order to follow Christ. It hits home for those of us who have had family members who have left us because of our relationship with Christ. But the Lord says, I will give you something better in this life and in the age to come, eternal life. In this life, I can only think that he's talking about the church. Because those are relationships that go far deeper, are far more meaningful, far more satisfying, far more important than any blood relationships or any other friendships you have in life. If you have to leave relationships in order to follow Christ, he will give you his church, a spiritual family that will be there for you forever. And in the age to come, eternal life, worshiping God in the fullness of glory, forever. I'm going to close with a quote that I'm sure most of you have heard before, and the reason it gets quoted all the time is it's such a great quote, and it's so appropriate to this passage. Jim Elliott was a missionary to the Aka Indians in Ecuador who was killed by those Indians as he tried to preach the gospel to them. Here's the quote. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. Let's pray. Father, thank you for making us rich in Christ. Thank you for opening our eyes. Thank you for opening our ears. Thank you for giving us a new heart. Thank you for giving us the gift of faith that we might see Christ for who he is, that we might understand what his death and resurrection means to us, that we might have this hope within us that no matter what comes in this life, that we belong to him and we have that gift of eternal life. Thank you that we can have great assurance because it wasn't our work and it won't continue to be our work. It's everything that Christ has done for us and the work of your spirit within us that makes it possible. And we can trust you.
your promises will be fulfilled. Thank you, Lord. We give you the praise for your good gift to us. And now give us wisdom, we pray, as we go out into a very wealthy culture and try to reach them with this life-changing gospel of Christ. We need your Holy Spirit to go before us. May we find success for the sake of your kingdom. In his name we pray, amen.